Thank you, worship team. We've uh, been having something of a minor debate around here for the last two or three weeks about who has the most difficult sermon to preach from the from the book of Matthew. Uh, and I just uh, want to let it be known that uh, Dr. D.A. Carson from Trinity Divinity School says that the passage that we're about to study, Matthew 24 and 25, is, and I quote, perhaps the most difficult and complex passage of Scripture, uh, passage in all of Scripture. Settled? Well, uh, uh the uh, fascinating thing is that for the next two or three weeks, we're going to be studying in this chapter. And I think each of us is going to get a bite of the chapter. I think I'm going to do one, and Pastor Rick, and I believe Pastor Jason also has an opportunity to, to speak from this chapter. If I'm, so we're all going to be dabbling with this Matthew 24, 25 passage. Would you turn there this morning to Matthew 24? Now, I would agree that this is a really difficult passage of Scripture, but... I think it doesn't have so much to do with the complexity of what it says. I think it has an awful lot to do with different prophetic understandings and views and interpretations. And so when people come to a passage like this, uh, they bring some baggage with them. We all do. Uh, And because of that baggage, then it seems like we we can't agree. Well, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew 24, 25. We're going to start by just looking at the first verses of the chapter 24. But uh, while we're not going to shy away from prophecy, we believe in prophecy at our church. We're not going to shy away from that. Uh, My goal, especially this morning, and I think the goal of the other speakers on this passage, is going to be primarily a focus on practical things. Now, oftentimes, prophecy doesn't seem to be practical. And so what I want us to do this morning is to take a look at this passage and, and especially raise a question, what does it mean? For people like us, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says we are people upon whom the end of the ages have come. And so our question is going to be, what does it mean for people like us, people of the last days, what does a passage like this have to do with us? And that's going to be the focus. Let's begin. I'm going to read the first 35 verses of this chapter and invite you to follow along as I read. It's relatively long, so bear with me here. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I'm the Christ, and deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Then, now, this, Matthew uses the word then several times, and each time I think he has a little bit different meaning. At this point, he's referring during this same period of time, 
during this same period of time that I just described to you, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will will, uh, betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, and then, now read the then as finally, and then finally, the end will come. So, verse 15. When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. In other words, he's inviting us to go back and look at that passage. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And those day, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, look, I've told you this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is the carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days. Now you notice we've just gone through three periods. There's the days that we're living in. Then there's the days of this end time. And now immediately after that time of distress, uh, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things... You know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What does it mean to be the people of God in the last day? So I I want you just to note with me four things this morning. The first thing I note is in verses 1 and 2. And I just put put it like this. During this end stage of history, during these last days, during this time that we're in, 
I think Jesus is, first of all, leading us to abandon our temples. Now, you see what he does here? It says, then Jesus left the temple and was walking away. Now, you remember that all these events are happening on what's called embattled Tuesday by some commentators. Jesus has just marched into Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he's visited the temple. And then there's been this series of what looks like a, just a series of controversies and parables back and forth. But in reality, Jesus has been in the battle of his life. He's been fighting for his life, and outwardly it looks like he loses. He's going to end up on the cross as a result of that battle. And, and last week he made these, uh, this statement in verse 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone uh, those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as hens would gather a chick under her wings, but you would not. I think the King James says, you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And so Jesus now is, is walking away. He's walking away from the temple. Now, while he's walking away, the disciples in verse 2 do an interesting thing. They're, they're still enamored of the temple. They're looking at, look at all these things. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, they're saying, look, teacher, look at the massive stones. And we're told there were just huge white stones of which this temple was made. And that it was a gorgeous thing. It was like one of the seven wonders of the world of its day. It was just a beautiful, gorgeous building. He says, look at all these massive stones and what magnificent buildings King Herod had uh, dedicated to some gold decorations. And one of those gold decorations was a set of fig leaves and a set of grape leaves. And, and one of the clusters hanging from that decoration was as tall as a man made out of solid gold. This was a beautiful, beautiful building. And the disciples, just like when we go on a trip, they see this and they say, wow, isn't this wonderful? And so the disciples are looking at this building as Jesus is walking away from it. And so I have to tell you, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect here. In spite of all that had happened through Jesus' ministry, and especially in those last days of his temple debates, the disciples were focused on the temple, and they were missing the major point of what Jesus was doing here symbolically through his actions. You see, as beautiful and nostalgic and historic as the temple of Jerusalem was in its day, for that next stage of redemptive history, the stage that we're living in right now, for that next stage of redemptive history, Jesus was leaving it behind. And that's the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Jesus is leaving it behind. No priest, no sacrifice, no temple. It's all been left behind. The disciples weren't getting that. Do you see, he says to them? I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them is going to be torn down. So what, what's going on here, if we can translate this over? Well, at one level, it's prophecy, isn't it? And it's an important prophecy, and we don't want to miss the importance of that prophecy. But at another level, I think it's a spiritual warning. And it's a warning not to become like the disciples to get distracted. Don't get distracted on our discipleship journey by the temples. The temples of our world. And I think it's important for us as an application principle here at strategic intervals, especially when we're tempted to be drawn to these temples, 
It's important for us to ask, what's my temple? What's the thing, or perhaps the good thing even, that's keeping me from following Jesus Christ as closely as I ought? Let me see if I can frame that question just a little bit differently. I want to read to you a story. It's from uh, the Depression days, and it's a homespun, folksy kind of story, and it's a little sentimental, but it's going to illustrate my point, and so I'm going to ask you to kind of bear with me. The story goes like this. As far back as I can remember, the writer says, uh, there was a pickle jar that sat on the floor beside the dresser in my parents' bedroom. And every night, Dad would empty his pockets and toss his coins into that jar. And as a small boy, I was always fascinated by the sounds the coins made when they dropped into that jar. They landed with a jingle, you know, ding, ding, when the, car, when the jar was nearly empty and kind of with a thud when it was full. So I used to squat in front of that jar for hours and imagine that it was a pirate's treasure. But to Dad and to me, it was so much more than even that. You see, when the jar was full, Dad and I would sit, sort the coins out in those little paper rolls rolls that the bank gives and then take them to the bank. And taking them to the bank was always a big deal for us. Each and every time as we drove to town, Dad would look at me and say, These coins are going to keep you out of the mill, son. You're going to do better than me. You're not going to grow up to be like me. And each and every time as he gave the rolled coins to the teller, he'd grin proudly and say, These are for my son's college fund. We'd always celebrate each deposit by stopping for an ice cream cone. I always got chocolate. Dad always got vanilla. And if there was any change, Dad would put it in his pocket and say, When we get home, we'll start filling the jar again. You go to college on pennies and nickels and quarters, son, but you will get there. I will see to that. I promise. For Dad and me, those handfuls of coins represented the future. They represented hope. Well, the years passed, and I did finish college, and I took a job in another town. And when I married, I told my wife Susan about how that lowly pickle jar uh, had been left for just for me. And then I left it at that. The first Christmas after our daughter Jessica was born, however, we spent the holiday with my parents. After dinner, Mom and Dad were sitting on the sofa, taking turns holding their first grandchild when Jessica began to cry. She just needs to be changed, Susan said, and carried her into my parents' bedroom. And when she came back, she handed Jessica to uh, my folks and then took my hand and led me back into the bedroom. Look, she said, and pointed to the floor beside the dresser. And sure enough, there stood that old pickle jar. And the bottom was already covered with coins. And I walked over to that jar, and I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out a fistful of coins, and I dropped them immediately into that jar. And just as I did, I looked up and saw that Dad had slipped into the room behind me. Our eyes locked, and I knew he was feeling exactly the same thing I felt. We knew... For us, that pickle jar represented the future. It represented hope. Let me see if I can kind of summarize then what the temple was standing for in the disciples' experience. To the Jews, the temple represented their future. It represented their hope. It wasn't something they even thought about. 
It was something that they shared as a part of a common story, like the story I just told you. Over a lifetime, over generations, that story had just become a part of their DNA. Now, Jesus was calling them away from that story, that very piece of themselves. And He was calling them to Himself, just as He's calling us away from our stories that don't give us ultimate value and calling us to Himself. And, and you know, it's not easy to get untangled from those stories, is it? And sometimes we get lost along the way. And thus, during this end stage of history, it's often good for us to ask, where is my pickle jar? Can I put it that way? What's keeping me from getting the point that Jesus is trying to make? What temple is God calling me to abandon in order to follow His Son better? So, what is it? What is it? Is it a job? Is it family? Is it friends? Is there some grievance somewhere in your life that's become sort of a pickle jar for you that you've held on to in some perverse way? It's, it's, it's grabbed you that become a part of your story? Is, is it a betrayal? Somebody has betrayed you and you can't let go of that because it's, it's begun to define you in some way? Is it some disappointment, something you didn't get, something you wanted so desperately that you can't let go? What is your temple? What is that pickle jar? that's entwined in your story that Jesus is calling you to come away from, to abandon, to leave behind. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. Come. Follow me. You see that there? I think that's the way we should live as people of the end times. And I think Jesus is making a second point. I think it's in verses 3 through 14, this longer segment here. If Jesus is calling away from us, us away from our temples, I think Jesus is also trying to tell us something that we need to learn. And we need to learn it well because it's a hard, difficult lesson to swallow. And it's simply this. During this end stage of history, now here it is, Bad things are going to happen to good Christians. Bad things are going to happen to good Christians. This is an overworked section, I think, partly due to its litany of the signs of the times. And you know how it works. Verse 5 talked about you know, false Christs coming in Jesus' name. And so we go through them and we start to list, well, all the false Christs that have occurred throughout history. Well, then surely the end of times must be near, huh? And then in verse 6 and 7, the two things are mentioned there, the wars and the famines and the earthquakes. And, and then we begin to count them. Well, look, I mean, all these terrible wars that have begun to happen and then all these famines all over the world that are starting to happen and, and all these, well, surely the end is near, right? Or there's persecution happening around the world according to verse 9. Surely that means the end is near, Right? Or how about faith decay? People are going to, their love is going to grow cold and they're going to begin to abandon the church and they're going to abandon Jesus and that's a sign of the end, right? And the gospel is going to be preached in all the world and that's going to be a sign of the end, right? Well, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. What do all these things mean? Nothing. 
really. Nothing, really. Jesus said it. See it there in verse 8? All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Um, do you know what Braxton Hicks contractions are? Paul, don't raise your hand. I know you know, and I think I know. I think I... Uh, Braxton Hicks contractions are, are, are the signs that the labor of a pregnant woman is that the labor is about to begin. They're not here yet, but they're, they're just little signs that what's really going to happen is about to come. Well, that's what Jesus says that the, these signs are. They're not a sign that the coming is near. They're like these Braxton Hicks contractions. When we see bad things happening, we shouldn't think that the end is near. Jesus said it's just the way things will be during this period of time in which we live. And then the end will come. So I'd like to suggest to you that the real question as we make practical application here is not what do these signs mean, as you can hear in dozens of sermons and dozens of TV channels. It's not, what do they mean? It's, what will I do with these things when they happen to me? And there's a likelihood that they will. A couple of weeks ago, Bev Phillips uh, emailed me an article uh, by Gordon MacDonald, uh, a pastor from uh, New England. He entitled his article, The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And it has to do with our attitude towards suffering. And, and here's part of what he says. He says, of course American Christians die. Of course we lose our jobs and occasionally taste a little bit of anti-faith bias in school and at the workplace. But compared to Christians in other generations and parts of the world, he says, we know so very little about suffering and that affects the way we follow Jesus. Biblical Christianity, he says, the kind that produces a robust faith is a realist view of life that faces strong into the wind of suffering. Biblical Christians, James tells us, consider it pure joy whenever they face trials of many kinds because they know that the testing of our faith makes us mature and complete, not lacking anything. The typical American response, however, he says, is that I don't deserve this. What did I do? Lord, get me out and get me out now. And McDonald concludes, we need better models. Take Vibia Perpetua, for example. Perpetua was a young mother, about 22 years old, and she lived in the 3rd century, about 240 A.D., Rome's emperor at the time was a pagan who demanded total allegiance to the state. And because Christians wouldn't sacrifice to the god of Rome, or any of the other gods for that matter, he determined to stamp them out. He considered them a plague. And among the first to be stamped out were five that he arrested. They were brand new Christians. They were taking classes, preparing for baptism, and Perpetua was one of them. Perpetua's father was not a believer. He was a pagan at the time. And he saw an easy way out. He said, well, just renounce your faith. Just give it up. And Perpetua said to him, Father, do you see this vase sitting here? And he said, yes, I do. He says, could that vase be called by any other name than it is? And he said, no. 
says, well, neither can I be called by any other name than what I am. I'm a Christian. That's what I am. Have pity on me, he pleased. At least think about me. Or, or t- think about your brothers. Or think about your mother. Or think about your family. Give up this foolish pride of yours, he said. And Perpetua replied to him, It will all happen to me as God wills. Well, the day of the hearing, the five believers were marched in before the governor and each in turn admitted that he was a Christian and each in turn refused to make the mandatory sacrifice to the state and to bow to other gods. And turning to Perpetua, the father asked, Are you a Christian? And she said, Yes. She said, Yes. Does that remind you of anything, Columbine? She said, Yes. So he condemned her along with the others to die in the arena. And on the day of the execution, the five were led to the stadium and uh, large beasts were released. And what the soldiers used to do was to kind of line up around them and drive the, these beasts into the group of Christians that would be huddled in the, in the middle of this stadium. And so one of the beasts charged the Christians and Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back and she slowly got up and then she stood up and she walked over and she rejoined the group. And, and then that not being enough, they, they released leopards and, and other animals that were more vicious than the first beasts. And they repeatedly, viciously attacked the Christians standing in the middle. But it was taking too long for the crowd to see them die. And so the crowd began to call for their death. And the soldiers lined up this small group of believers in a row and methodically killed them one by one. The gladiator who was to kill Perpetua, however, was inexperienced, and on his first blow, it didn't work. She did not die. And so she took the sword herself and put it to her throat and said, Here, do it this way. And she died in the stadium. Does it surprise you that Perpetua's last words to her fellow believers were, Stand stand fast in the faith and love one another. You know what Jesus said? These things must happen. These things must happen. Bad stuff happens, even to Christians. But it doesn't mean that the end has come. If Jesus is calling away us away from those temples that we erect as substitutes for Him... He's also calling us to follow Him no matter what. And then that brings me to the third point that He's making. He wants us to desert those temples that we like to build as a substitute. He wants us to know that bad things can happen. And now I've got to tell you the story gets worse. He also wants us to know that during this end stage of history, there are going to be some disasters too. And some of them are going to be so horrid They're going to be faith-shaking, like this thing that happens in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that caused desolation. Now, introduce you to the idea of multiple fulfillments in Scripture. I think these these there's sort of a bookending that's going to happen here, and then an in between. 
In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, Luke saw one fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus gave. It was a partial fulfillment, but it was a realistic picture of what's going to come in the future. Luke describes it this way. He says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now that, that's what happened in 70 AD, about 30, 40 years after Jesus was crucified on the cross. And you see the little phrase that we have underlined there, until the times of the Gentiles fulfilled. That's the period that, that of Gentile world rule where uh, the little nation of Israel really doesn't have a say in its own affairs. It doesn't really have a say. It really kind of has to ask permission. Now, that's the stage that we're living in. That time of the Gentiles began in A.D. 70 when the Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem. Josephus describes what happened at that time, this little foretaste of things to come, this little preview of coming attractions. He says people's cries were louder than the fighting in the streets. He says Jewish soldiers tormented their own people to get food from them. He says thousands were crucified in the city of Jerusalem itself. He said there was horrid famine. The famine was so horrid at one time, one woman took her own child, a little child that had died, and she cooked it and she ate it. That's how horrid the famine became in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There were piles of dead bodies lying in the street. One plus million Jews died. During that time, we're told, and 97,000 plus were taken into captivity. And the armies did take the city and the temple was destroyed. In fact, as the temple was being burned, the gold melted and it melted into the cracks. And because the Roman soldiers wanted the gold, they began to pull the, the, the stones apart as massive as these were so they could get the massive amounts of gold that were buried. It was a horrid, horrible, awful time. That's preview of coming attraction. That happened in A.D. 70. Now at the other end, there's this part where Jesus describes the abomination of desolation. He says, now when it happens in its full-blown power, He says, I want you to know that you better run. You better flee because this is going to be a time on planet like you've never seen before. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, if we could call that, describes just a piece of this. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed for destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And that's the precursor of what Christians refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. That's when it all, can I say it? That's when all hell breaks loose on planet Earth. So you've got this preview in AD 70, and you've got this final fulfillment at the end. But I'd like to suggest to you that that doesn't mean there aren't going to be disasters in the meantime. I think there are going to be multiple fulfillments throughout history, the very history that we inhabit, like the Holocaust in Germany. I don't know how many millions of Jews were killed by the Germans. Like the killing fields of Cambodia. I don't know how many millions of people were killed namelessly. 
thoughtlessly killed and left in the killing fields of Cambodia. Or like the Twin Towers event in the United States. Or like the tragedy that just happened in Denver. There are going to be these things. These horrible, awful disasters. Jesus has told us they're going to happen. And some of them are going to be faith-shaking. And some believers are going to lose their faith as a result of it, is what Jesus warns. Some will lose their faith. If it were possible. He is. But rather than losing faith... I think there's also another option. During the tribulation that's described in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, there's this description of 144,000 Jewish people. They seem to be marvelously converted. The book of Revelation says they're sealed, specially sealed. And then in that same chapter, immediately following in that context, it says there's going to be a great multitude that's envisioned in heaven that no one could count. And the question commentators is always asking is, how do you get from that 144,000, that small group at the end of time, to this innumerable multitude that come out of the tribulation? And I heard one guy describe it like this. Imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls unleashed on the world. And that's exactly what's going to happen during the time of the tribulation. It's an awful, horrible time, but there's also going to be salvation like you wouldn't believe and an unnumberable great multitude that no one could count people coming to know Jesus at that time. Now, here's my question. What makes that 144,000 so effective? Remember when I told you oh, a couple of years ago in a sermon about J.I. Packer's Law of the Harvest? The, the Law of the Harvest goes like this. He says, Before there is blessing anywhere, this is the Law of the Harvest, before there is blessing anywhere, there will first be suffering somewhere. C.S. Lewis, in uh, uh, that first novel of his, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, remember when the lion, when Aslan is killed on that rock and it's described as that deep mystery or magic of the universe? That's the law of the harvest. Before there is blessing anywhere, there will first be suffering somewhere. Packer writes, Scripture doesn't explain this, but simply sets it before us as a fact. Jesus first announced it when he declared, Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. John chapter 14, verse 24. The many seeds, Packer says, in Jesus' case, were those many millions of people. We're one of them. We sit among them, those many millions of people who would come to know Him, to come to life as a result of His death on the cross. But Jesus also added that whoever serves me must follow me, and He was applying that law of the harvest to us. So, Packer says, every experience of pain, every grief, every disappointment, Every being hurt by others is a little death, isn't it? It hurts. It's like dying. And when we serve the Savior in our worldly world, Packer says, there are many such deaths to be died. Yet be assured, 
The law of the harvest is at work. Through the pounding we receive, we are, so to speak, ground small, so that what we are becomes food for a hungry world. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's not always God's plan for us to escape. Sometimes God transforms us into more effective people in His kingdom by asking us to go through all these hurts, all these difficulties, all these challenges. The point is that there will be recurring great tribulations when God asks some of us to endure life's worst. But He'll only do that for two reasons. To show His grace is sufficient even during those worst possible times. We must go through the same kinds of things that other believers, unbelievers go through. How else would we show them that Jesus is sufficient for life? And then as a result of that, we become like the Apostle Paul. We become people whose life and witness takes effect. That's the third thing I see here. Fourth and real quickly, during this end stage of history... We can trust Jesus to come and get us, and we win. Now, I'm not going to try to go into any detail in these passages, but I just want you to look at verse 29. Jesus says that immediately after the distress of those days, that after this horrible end time thing I described earlier, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sun, the sign of the Son of the Man will appear in the sky, and the nations will mourn. I, yeah, I just title this, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming to get you. Let me, let me show you this psalm from the Old Testament. This is a fascinating psalm. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the psalmist is writing in Psalm 18, the cords of the grave, of, uh, the cords of the grave coiled around me. See that little word, me? The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called the Lord. Now, there's not a multitude of people here. There's not a whole nation. This is not the whole church at risk. This is not even an individual. This is one lowly believer. Me. My. Me. And I need help. And so I cried to my Lord for help. Now, from his temple, you can read heavenly temple, he heard my voice. Now, look at the description here. The earth trembled and quaked and shook the foundations of the mountains. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. And we see the next section. He parted the heavens and came down. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning routed them. And here's the key. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord. At the blast of your breath from your nostrils, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me. Now, what is going on here? 
Well, I think there's a literal fulfillment at the end of time, but I think this is a figurative fulfillment. And let me show you on this next slide here what I think it means. The psalmist was not claiming that after his prayer, a storm took place, followed by an earthquake and a volcanic eruption that shook the mountains and raised the seabed. His intention was to declare that when the Lord comes to deliver me, us, He comes with all His power and glory, and that creation is subject to His Master. In other words, I may not be around for that second coming, which will really happen as it's really described, but any time the Sovereign Lord comes to rescue. It's the same Sovereign Lord that has all this power behind Him. He comes to rescue me. Do you see it? The same God with the same ability is my God coming to rescue me. So He's coming. He's coming. The second thing I see in verses 30 and 31, He's not just coming. He's coming to get us. Uh, See that phrase there? Verse 31, He will send His angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather His elect. He's coming, people. And He's coming to get us and to rescue us from all this evil stuff. And then third, we win when He comes to get us. I'm not going to try to talk about the parable of the fig tree or any of those things, but look at verse 33, would you? Uh, Verse 32, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. That Those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. You remember the song? He comes to... He's coming. He's coming to get me. And when He comes... We win, people. We win. Well, I know I've left all kinds of prophetic questions unanswered in this passage. It wasn't my intent to try. Maybe we can talk about those at some other time. Pastor Rick, that'll be your sermon. That's your assignment. But for this morning, I just want to leave you with this thought. What does it mean? What does it mean to be God's people in these last days? I really think it boils down to one word. It boils down to the word trust. Trust me, Jesus says, and abandon those temples that you're building. Good, bad, whatever. Trust me and abandon them. I'm your future. I'm your hope. Trust me, he says. Even though bad things are going to happen to good Christians, bad things are going to happen to some of us. Trust me, he says, even though there will be faith-shaking tragedies in this world that no one could ever explain. Trust me. And trust me, he says, because I'm coming to get you. And when I do, I want you to know, we win. It will have been worth it in the end. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this wonderful... uh, set of words that you've given us. I pray, God, that you take the meditations of our heart, that you take these lessons, you'd help us to learn from them and to use them in our own time of need and to learn to trust you more. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close today?